You're listening to an Imagine More podcast. The presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 Get That Good Life Conference. Hello, my name is Jessie Ward. I'm a Year 12 student and I am in a choir called Octave. I'm here to introduce a highly celebrated author, Hugh McKay. Hugh is a social psychologist. He has spent the past 60 years in social research. He is an honorary professor at ANU. He has written 22 books and eight novels. His most recent book is called The Kindness Revolution. Today, you will talk to us about kindness, connection, and community. Please welcome Hugh McKay. Thank you very much, and good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to begin our time together by saying something that may strike you as being so blindingly obvious that it's hardly worth saying, but it's a necessary introduction to, to what I want to say about kindness and community. And it's just a reminder that we humans belong to a social species. We are social creatures. Uh, what that means is we're hopeless in isolation. We need each other. We need families, groups, neighborhoods, communities of all kinds to nurture us and sustain us and to give us that all-important sense of belonging, which is so fundamental to the mental and emotional health of people who belong to a social species. Our, our job on the planet really is to promote social harmony because that's how our species will survive, let alone thrive. So it comes as no surprise, does it, to learn that neuroscientists who can now peep into the human brain in a way that psychologists and philosophers could previously only speculate about, neuroscientists now tell us that there is in the human brain an identifiable cooperative center, as you would expect for people who belong to a social species. We are hardwired to cooperate. And what that means is that we have an innate, inbuilt capacity for kindness, because kindness is obviously the magic ingredient in human cooperation and in this project of creating social harmony. Now, the fact that we're built for kindness doesn't, of course, mean we're always kind. The human brain has a language center also. That doesn't mean we're born able to speak the mother tongue. We still have to have our capacity for language nurtured and encouraged and reinforced, and it's the same with our capacity for kindness. So what do I mean when I say kindness? Let's define what kindness is. And to do that, I just want to go back to my original remark to remind us yet again that we are members of a social species. What that means is that our deepest psychological need is to feel that we belong. Our deepest psychological need is to be taken seriously, to be noticed, to be appreciated, to be understood, to be included, to be heard. So I would define kindness as anything we do to show another person that we do take them seriously, that we do acknowledge them, we do respect them, we do appreciate them, we notice them, we include them. So acts of kindness can be anything from 
just a friendly smile or a wave as you pass someone in the street, even a total stranger, through to offering to buy someone a cup of coffee or share a meal or help a frail elderly person do their shopping or pick a bag of lemons from the backyard tree and take them to someone who's a bit socially isolated in your street. And probably one of the most potent acts of kindness we can ever perform is to listen to someone. When I listen to you, what I'm saying to you without having to put it into words at all is I take you seriously enough to bother listening to what you have to say. And of course, the opposite is true. (laughs) If I don't listen attentively and empathically to what you're saying, then without putting it into words, the message I'm sending you is, I don't take you seriously enough to bother listening to what you have to say. Would you ever say that to a partner or to a child or to a colleague or a neighbor or a friend? Of course you wouldn't. And yet when we withhold the therapeutic gift of listening, this potent act of kindness, then by implication, we are performing an act of great unkindness. So kindness is a therapeutic act because of its effect on our psychological state. In fact, I think of the human capacity for kindness as perhaps our most precious asset. We don't always value it as if it's our most precious asset, do we? Our our natural inbuilt capacity for kindness can easily be smothered by ego-driven impulses, by our ambition or our competitiveness or our acquisitiveness. The ego is the great enemy of kindness. But kindness, when it happens, and of course it happens millions of times every day all over Australia, uh, acts of kindness are to me a remarkable demonstration of what I think of as the purest form of human love. Now, all human love is wonderful, isn't it? A romantic love is exciting and energizing, and familial love is remarkable. Blood is thicker than water, all of that. But kindness is the one form of human love that doesn't involve emotions at all. Kindness has got nothing to do with affection. Kindness is simply doing what I said a moment ago, performing acts of recognition, appreciation, listening, etc., to someone without necessarily feeling anything about them. We can be kind to people we don't like. Isn't it exciting to, to notice that you belong to a species with that capacity? We can be kind to people we don't like. Samuel Johnson, 250 years ago, wrote very wisely, kindness is in our power even when fondness is not. And I think that's uh, something we should uh, we should write down and stick on our notice board or our desk or somewhere. So we can be kind to people we don't like. We can be kind to people we could never agree with about religion or politics or culture or anything. We can be kind to total strangers. Kindness is caring without qualification. You see someone in need, you don't say, if you're being true to your human nature, you don't say, ah, I see you're in a bit of a jam, you need a hand. Now first, let, tell me how you voted in the last election, or tell me whether you believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. 
we don't do that, do we? We don't qualify people in order to decide whether we're going to show kindness to them. It's just the natural human response to the needs of other people. When we're being true to what Abraham Lincoln described as the better angels of our nature. Now, bearing all that in mind, that, that's my little summary of what it means to be human and why kindness is of the very essence of human nature. But bearing all that in mind, just pause for a moment and think about what's been going on in our society and in many Western societies just like ours over the last 30 or 40 years. This has been a period of upheaval pre-pandemic. It's been a period of enormous, radical, social, cultural, economic, demographic change. And the effect of all of this change has been to push us in the opposite direction from the one that I've just been describing. What we've been looking at over the last 30 or 40 years is a process of social change in which Australia, like so many other societies, has become more socially fragmented, in which our sense of belonging, our sense of community, our sense of needing each other hasn't disappeared, of course, because it's our human nature, but it has been eroded. It has been diminished. And let me, I won't dwell on this, but let me just take a few moments to describe some of the major trends which have been reshaping our society and then perhaps you can see what I mean when I say that these trends have been contrary to our nature and have been having the effect of making us a more fragmented society. I won't, I won't dwell on any of these. They're obvious. Uh, we know all about them because we've been living through them. In fact, we've been driving the trends by the way we choose to live. First on my list, I'd put our shrinking households. We've reached the point. Our households have been shrinking for 100 years, by the way, in the last 100 years. Our population has increased fivefold. The number of households in Australia has increased tenfold. So we've been creating households at twice the rate we've been growing the population. In other words, our households are shrinking. The average Australian household now contains 2.5 people, but the fastest growing household type, which already accounts for one household in four, is the single-person household. The Bureau of Statistics tells us that within the next 10 or 12 years, one household in three will contain just one person. Now, that doesn't mean that all those people in every third or fourth house are living a lonely life or a life of social isolation, but it does mean the risk of that has been greatly increased. There are plenty of people who love living alone and who see their solo householder status as a symbol of their freedom and independence. And they say, I do think by myself, I've got friends, I've got family, I've got colleagues, I can go out and mix with people as much as I like, and then I come home, shut the door, punch the air, and say, alone at last. Uh, and this is the symbol of my freedom and independence. Well, that's terrific, but not everyone who lives alone feels like that. Uh, through my research career, I've spoken to thousands of people who live alone, and many stories are not as chirpy as that one. Many people have been pitchforked into living alone as a result of a relationship breakdown or a bereavement or some other change in their life circumstances, and they find themselves living alone involuntarily and 
they do feel lonely. They do wish they had someone to turn to and, and talk to about what they just saw on television. There are people who say when they, when they go out, they turn the television set on so it'll, there'll be a feeling of colour and movement when they come back. Uh, it won't feel so much like an empty house. Well, I won't go on about that, but it's a huge demographic shift that's occurred, particularly in the last 30 years as the rate of shrinkage has increased. We need to be very alert to the fact that in our midst, in our neighbourhood, in our community, every fourth household, and it's a growing proportion, contains just one person, and they are potentially vulnerable. I mentioned relationship breakdown. Another factor impelling us towards becoming a more fragmented society is the rate of relationship breakdown. Between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages will end in divorce, hugely disruptive and dislocating for the couples who split, for their immediate families, for the children, if there are any, for their extended families, for their friendship circles, for the neighbourhoods involved. And of course, if it's a couple, then a a two-person household splits into two single-person households, at least for a while. So that's a a disruptive phenomenon, which is happening on a large scale. I mentioned kids there. The rate of relationship breakdown helps to explain why in contemporary Australia, one million dependent children now live with just one of their natural parents and half of them, half a million kids, this is, this is something worth trying to visualise, half a million kids are involved once a week or once a fortnight in a mass migration from the home of the custodial parent to the home of the non-custodial parent for an access visit. Again, hugely disruptive and dislocating for all involved. Many families work that out beautifully, but most have trouble in the early stages. While I've mentioned kids, I want to add one other thing to this little list, uh, and that's our falling birth rate. We're currently producing, relative to total population, the smallest generation of children Australia has ever produced. Now, why do I mention that? Well, I mention it simply because As any parent knows, if you move into a new neighbourhood, it's usually the kids who get to know the other kids first. Kids are a kind of social lubricant, aren't they? Uh, And gradually, families get to know each other because the kids met at school or on the bus or down at the park or wherever it might be. Went where, as we are now, producing the smallest, relative to total population, the smallest generation of children we've ever produced. That social lubricant is in smaller supply than ever. We compensate, of course. It's amusing to see the graph showing our falling birth rate compared with the graph showing our rising rate of pet ownership, especially dogs. And we know a lot of those dogs are child substitutes because we know what their names are. I I recently met a dog called Ian, uh, which I thought was quite quaint, but I was talking to a group recently and Somebody in the group said, oh, yeah, my dog's called Hugh. So there's no limit to this madness. Anyway. That's, that's the birth rate. Uh, just, just three other things I'd mentioned on this list. Our increased mobility. Just like Americans now, Australians move house on average once every six years. And we're more mobile, of course, in the sense that we have universal car ownership. Most of us live in drive-in, drive-out suburbs. You wave at your neighbor's car. Uh, you assume your neighbor's driving it. But that's very different from stopping and having a little chat on the footpaths, foot, footpath traffic is in sharp decline. Another factor I'd add here is busyness. 
Have you noticed how busy we've all become? And we seem to be proud of it. We seem to have elevated busyness to the status of a social virtue. In Australia, it's even changed the way we greet each other, hasn't it? We say, how are you, how are you going? Busy? As though, come on, you, you know, you, the switch can only be on or off. Are you busy or are you dead? Uh, well, this is madness, especially when we realise that busyness is the great enemy of social cohesion. Ah, the neighbours are having drinks on Friday. Are they? Oh, sorry, no, I'm too busy. I won't be able to do that. Don't disturb Daddy. He's busy. Uh, Well, some of us can't avoid being busy, but we need to recognise that it's hazardous for social cohesion and it contributes to social fragmentation, as does the information technology revolution. And this is a controversial subject. We could spend the rest of our time together talking about this, and I won't do that. But I just want to note that this is a paradoxical revolution. It's made this conference possible over these couple of days, and it's brilliant, of course. And through lockdowns, many of us have been very grateful to various forms of information technology, various platforms, social media, other things that have allowed us to maintain a semblance of personal contact. But of course, it isn't personal contact. I'm staring at a little light that tells me where the camera is on my computer, but I can't see you. And even if we were doing FaceTime and um, uh, and I could see your face, I wouldn't be seeing you. I'm still only seeing a screen. This is the paradox. The information technology revolution has promised to make us more connected than ever before, and it has. And at the same time, it's made it easier than ever before for us to stay apart from each other at great personal cost. The segment of our community reporting the highest levels of loneliness are the 18 to 25-year-olds, those young adults who also happen to be our heaviest users of social media. So we now have the phenomenon that's been described by many social commentators of people who are connected but lonely. Well, now I'll stop that little lightning trip through social change and just ask you to pause there and reflect on those, and you've probably thought of other social changes that have been reshaping our society, but just think about the cumulative effect of the changes that I've described just then. Obviously, taken together, they contribute to the trend towards becoming more socially fragmented. They help to explain the rise of a kind of, I think, quite rampant individualism the rise of what we think of as the me culture, the rise of our obsession with identity, identity politics, gender identity, religious identity, political identity. It's all these identity things are important. I'm not denying that for a moment. But when we become obsessed about identity, when we become obsessed about me and my place in the world and my rights and my entitlements and so on, what we're emphasizing is difference. What we're promoting is division, and that's contrary to our fundamental nature as human beings who share a common humanity. Well, if you put together all those trends I described and think about the kind of creatures human beings are, what would you predict would be the outcome for a society that had gone through this kind of upheaval and had become more socially fragmented. What do you think would be the likely outcome? It's easy to predict, isn't it? You'd say, well, probably we're going to have 
an epidemic of loneliness. And indeed, we have an epidemic of loneliness that predates the pandemic. That's exacerbated it. But pre-COVID-19, the Australian Psychological Society and Swinburne University did some research which showed, and this is pretty chilling, that 25% of all Australian adults report feeling lonely for most of every week. Just think about that. Among the people you know or the people you live amongst, there is a probability that about a quarter of them are feeling lonely for a large part of every week. That's an epidemic. And we have well-documented well and, and widely discussed epidemics of anxiety and depression. And you would expect that, wouldn't you, for a society that's been going through what we've been going through. In our criminal justice system, solitary confinement is the worst punishment we can think of for a prisoner, because it is the worst punishment for someone who belongs to a social species. Well, there's been a lot of solitary confinement through the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, with this high proportion of people who are suffering from the experience of social isolation, uh, we do have something of a mental health crisis on our hands. So against that background, let's now think about the present. 2020, along come the bushfires, closely followed by the pandemic, and now in 2021, more and more and more of the pandemic, though we've decided to live with it and we're making adjustments and so on. But just reflect on what things like bushfires, floods, wars, depressions, and pandemics do to us. Because we've got a lot of history to tell us what they do to us, and we've got a lot of experience in the recent past to tell us what they do to us and, and what they do to us, what crises and catastrophes mostly do to us is emphasize just how interdependent and just how interconnected we really are. It often takes a crisis or a catastrophe, a major disruption of some kind, to remind us all over again that we all exist in a shimmering, vibrating web of interconnectedness and interdependency. That's who we are. Now, sure, when there's a crisis, when there's a catastrophe, our first reaction is often negative. We resort to fear or panic, and that brings out the worst in us. But very quickly, for most of us, for the overwhelming majority of us, what happens is that our true human nature shines through, and we become kinder. We become more concerned about the well-being of that frail elderly person who lives at the end of the street, or we notice that we haven't seen someone out walking for a few days and maybe they need some help. We reach out to give a hand with shopping or collecting prescriptions or something for people who might be housebound, and we hadn't really noticed until the pandemic arrived. We recognise, under the influence of a crisis, that we need to make sacrifices for the common good. Of course we do. Because we belong to this species, this group of creatures called humans, of course, if we're a cooperative species, if we exist, uh, if we are utterly dependent for our existence, all groups and communities, as I described earlier, of course, we have to make personal sacrifices for the common good. But sometimes it takes a crisis like the present one to remind us that that's true. 
Now, the big question, you know, it's a question that probably fascinates you as much as it fascinates me, but certainly social scientists have been fascinated by it, is has COVID been enough of a shock, enough of a circuit breaker to not counteract those trends that I've been describing and not remove them. They're not going to go away. Our households are not going to suddenly expand. We're not going to throw away our smartphones. We're not going to remarry the people we're divorced from. Of course, the trends are still there. But has COVID-19 been enough of a circuit breaker to just cause us to pause and think about the effects of those social trends on us and our neighborhoods and our society? and think about ways that we might be able to mitigate those effects. So take some of the learnings from the pandemic and see if we can internalize them and hang on to them. Now, we have learned, haven't we all over again, the importance of the local neighborhood, the importance of looking out for people at risk of social isolation, the importance of greeting people uh, who might be feeling a bit blue or a bit anxious and who are reassured by your smile or your brief discussion about the weather. We've all had a little taste of social isolation. That's been a powerful learning experience for many people. They've got a taste of it. They know they don't like it. Will they now be more alert to the needs of people who are permanently at risk of social isolation? We've learned that we have to cooperate to get through something like this. We've even learned by our reliance on information technology that it's nothing like the real thing, is it? We can't wait to get out and see each other again and hug each other again and make that all-important eye contact that the neuroscientists tell us is so crucially, vitally uh, contributing to human mental health and emotional well-being. So have we had enough of a shock? People who lived through the Great Depression and I spoke to a lot of them in my research career as well. People who'd lived through, who'd raised families through the Great Depression, which was longer than this and produced much higher levels of unemployment than this and had nothing like the social security protection that we have today. People who lived through that said it was awful. It was a period of terrible deprivation and hardship, and it taught us powerful lessons about what it means to be human. It taught us about the role of neighbors. Uh, not that we have to be best friends with our neighbours, but we do have to be neighbours. It taught us to rethink our values, to reorder our priorities. And many people in that generation, years later, 30, 40 or 50 years later, were still saying it was the making of us. We did get our thinking straight and we never forgot. And perhaps we became a laughing stock in our families because we became famous as the people who would never throw out a piece of string or a, a rubber band or something. We're the people who would bake a cake when someone new moved into the street. We'd go and welcome them, and those, those habits and practices had rather died out. But what they were saying was the disruption was so great that the learning was powerful. And the question for us to ask ourselves now, I think, is has the disruption been great enough for the learnings about what it means to be human and for the need for kindness as the lubricant that oils the machinery of social cohesion. Have we understood that all over again? Have we had a fresh realization of the importance of that? Now, it's not just a personal question, is it? It's a societal question as well. Is it possible, 
the, the experience of living through this pandemic won't just have an impact on us as individuals and the way we relate to our neighbourhoods and so on, but might it affect the way we think about big national questions as well? Could a kindness revolution, and here's an opportunity to turn a crisis into a revolution, could a kindness revolution even permeate the political culture as well as our social culture? Certainly, if we became a kinder society, wouldn't it be lovely if we were renowned as a kind society instead of just a lucky country? What about a kind country? What about a loving country? How's that? But if if we did become kinder in the way we think about everything, the way we evaluate economic or social proposals that come before governments, uh, it would make a huge difference, wouldn't it? We'd, for a start, we'd make a much more energetic commitment to reconciliation with the peoples of our First Nations. We'd make a far more humane response to people who come here perfectly legitimately seeking asylum. We'd make a much more determined effort, wouldn't we, to eradicate poverty and homelessness. Uh, We'd be far more urgent in our response to the looming threats posed by the effect of climate change. Surely if we were a kinder culture, we'd be more generous to people for whom we can find no work, and certainly our attitude to those struggling with mental illness, with disabilities, or other debilitating conditions would be radically different from the way it is now. Certainly, a kindness revolution would lead us to take far better care of the frail aged in our midst. Uh, We'd be far more aggressive in tackling the growing problem of educational inequality in our society. And certainly, wouldn't we insist on more civility, more courtesy, more mutual respect in the way we conduct our politics and our industrial relations, our public discourse in general? Well, that's all big picture stuff, and I think that's important. But let's bring it right home. Let's bring it to our own front doors, to our own families, our own workplaces, recognizing that the state of the nation, which we can easily wring our hands about, the state of politics uh, that can lead us to despair, but the state of the nation actually starts in the street where we live. Now, think about your dreams of a better society. If you dream of a better Australia, a better Canberra, Uh, a better street, a better suburb where you happen to live. What sort of dreams do you have if some sleepy Sunday afternoon you're thinking, ah, how would I like society to be different? Well, it's not very hard for me to imagine what you're dreaming. You are not dreaming of a society that's more violent. You're not saying, "I, I wish... I wish people would waste so many words. I wish when they disagree with each other, they just hit each other. We'd, we'd save a lot of effort, wouldn't we? Uh, why are people so kind to each other? Why is there all this obsession with equity and uh, equality and so on? I, I don't get it. You know, why don't why don't we just why don't we just adopt the survival of the fittest as our way of life? That'd, that'd be a good society. Rubbish. <laughs> None of us dream of a society like that. You, you think I'm mad? So what kind of society do we dream of? Surely, when we dream of a better society, we do dream of a kinder, more compassionate, more cooperative, 
more mutually respectful, more inclusive, more egalitarian, more harmonious, less violent, less cynical. Now, is that, is that your dream? Is that the kind of society that you'd like us to become? Believe me, you share that dream with virtually everyone who thinks about us and our future. So if that is your dream, there's only one way to start making it come true. And that is that each of us, personally, individually, where we are right now, this day, each of us must live as if it is already that kind of society. In other words, we must live in a way that will make a positive contribution to society becoming kinder, more compassionate, more respectful, more harmonious, etc. If enough people live in that way, then change will come. Revolutions never start at the top. It's that smile. It's that wave. It's that willingness to give attentive and empathic listening to someone who needs to be understood, needs to be included. That's the contribution that we can start making right now. Thank you. Thank you. That was fantastic. Messaging there all about the Minus Revolution. I'm definitely hooked. Um, As you know, I wanted to have our conference in person and there's just nothing like that one-on-one interaction. So powerful. And we've got some lovely uh, messages uh, that's helping people see things in a different way. Uh, So we've got a few questions for you, Hugh. have you got some examples of how we can show kindness and create more neighbourhood relationships? Mm. Yes, I think it's it's one of the consequences of the social changes that I was describing, Jan, is that I think many people, particularly in our biggest city, but a big problem has been forgetting what it means to be a neighbour. Uh, we understand what it means to be a family member, we understand what it means to be a friend or a colleague, but I think we have rather lost sight of what it means to be a neighbour. And the way we develop neighbourhoods that flourish is by each of us remembering that when we step outside our front door, one of our obligations as a citizen, one of our obligations as a human is to be neighbourly in our response to the people who live around us. The the neighbourhood, it's a curious thing, isn't it? The neighbourhood is like the test bed of how civilised we are because here we are living in a street or in an apartment block or suburb, wherever we're living, town, among people we didn't choose to live with. These are not like friends. These are not like family. There's some other category and they might be very weird and we mightn't feel any particular affection for any of them, but they're our neighbours. And so what builds a better society and what generates an engaged neighbourhood is when we take on that responsibility of engaging with the neighbourhood, listening to the per, making sure we know who they are for a start. I mean, at least two up and two down and two across the road. If we don't know their names, it's time we knocked on their door and said, hello, I'm here, I live here, I'm not, I don't want to annoy you, but I'm here if you ever need me or I'm having a couple of neighbours in for a drink on Friday, do you want to join in, meet some of the people in the streets? Uh, I mean, the pandemic has led a number of people to do things like that. I 
very early in the first lockdown, Jane, I found myself up on a webinar, dreadful word, but anyway, that's what it was called, a webinar. Uh, and as usual with these things, we were ciphered off in little, little uh, chat rooms. And I was in a chat room with just with two young blokes. I'd say both in their early 30s. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. They were one in Sydney, one in Melbourne. I was in Canberra. And by coincidence, they had both just moved into new accommodation before the lockdown. So they're in this weird situation. They found themselves living in an environment where they didn't know anyone. And their response to that, I think, was inspiring and instructive for all of us. They each wrote, I mean, they didn't know each other. They didn't collaborate on this. It was just a coincidence. They each wrote little notes on which they said, look, I'm new to the street. I don't know anyone, but here's my phone number. If you need any help with anything during the lockdown, just give us a call. And they put those notes in the letterboxes of people in the street. Now, that's that's so simple. Uh, It was such a lovely thing to do. Any gesture that says to our neighbours, I'm here, I'm engaged, I'm not wanting to interfere, I'm not wanting to intrude, but I'm available. One of the nastiest pieces of research I've read in the last few years was a study that showed that 50% of Australians felt they could not call on their neighbours for help. Well, I'm sure that isn't true, but it's a feeling they had that goes along with feeling a loss of social cohesion feeling more fragmented. So people saying, as they so often do say in in our major cities, oh, I don't know my neighbour's name. That's a very weird thing to be living next door to someone and not even know who they are. So reach out uh, in the simple ways. Smile, wave, knock on the door, invite people in for a drink at Tate. I I did hear one one woman who lived alone saying that someone in her neighbour had the bright idea of a pizza night for the street every Friday night. And so this woman would creep into her house after work and turn off all the lights and tower inside <laughs> so she wouldn't be dead to the, the weekly. I mean, you can overdo it, <laughs> but the idea of doing it occasionally is a great idea. Yeah, no, there's some great ideas out. It really doesn't take much. Like, I guess that's where COVID can be the excuse to connect with people. And let's hope people take that off. Yeah, and I I loved your reference to the fact that kindness isn't linked to an emotion. So we don't have to like our neighbours to be kind. Um, So a really strong message there for people to take up. We need to think of, because we're human, we need to think of kindness as being a bit like breathing. And it's just part of who we are. You'll, You'll die if you don't breathe. Well, socially we'll die if we don't just, just let kindness be our way of being in the world. And it's not always convenient. Um, I read in your talk. No, no, I, I, I really—that's very true, Jan. I, and I'm, I'm very strongly opposed to this idea that if we're kind, that'll make us feel good. You know, be kind to other people, and you'll feel better. Well, you might, and you might not. Might, as you say, <laughs> might be very. You know, here's someone in the middle of a rainstorm. Their shopping bag has burst, and all their stuff's all over the footpath. And you're there. What are you going to do? Well, of course, you're going to. Get, get out in the rain and help them pick up all their stuff. Uh, and when that's over, you're going to be soaked and you're going to be running late. You're not going to feel better. On the other hand, you have made the world a better place. That's right. 
So why do you think um, our modern society isn't as resilient or connected compared to people that have survived, say, the Great Depression? For example, you, you mentioned the Great Depression earlier. Um, or do you believe we are most resilient? Well, I said probably not, but we'll see. I mean, we have coped pretty well with the pandemic, but our, our patience has worn thin. A lot of people haven't played by the rules. I think there are two explanations, Dan. One is the one that I gave when I talked about the, the nature of recent social change, the nature of contemporary Western society has pushed us somewhat apart from each other, has reduced our sense of all being one, of being interdependent, and resilience depends absolutely on the sense of knowing that I'm part of a network. I don't have to face this on my own. Resilience is all to do with we're in this together. We're all one. If, if there is poverty in our society, that means we are poor, not they are poor. It's a different perspective. The other thing I think that's relevant is that we've had a dream run. 28 years of uninterrupted economic growth was very poor preparation for the deprivations of economic as well as social and other deprivations, to say nothing of health issues, of a pandemic. But the people, look, the generation ahead of us, who are now almost all dead, they lived through World War I, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, and World War II. Well, there was not much option except to become resilient when you were living through such a period of, uh, of, of upheaval on that scale. Yes, and perhaps this is where the climate revolution will create and change. And I think it just gives us something that we really need through this period to be more connected, more resilient and kind to others. So thank you so much, Hugh, for joining us today. Thank you, Jen. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to an Imagine More podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to imaginemore.org.au for more great content.